Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, we'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Last time we looked at the very first uh, 11 verses where we got to talk about the ascension of Jesus and how before He ascended to heaven, he, uh, Luke brought us in that this was part 2. He's the one that wrote Luke's Gospel and then he wrote Acts. So Acts is part 2. Both are addressed to Theophilus, the God lover. And we're all God lovers, so it's addressed to us. And I love the fact that he uh, showed us um, and taught us that Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God, of what it looks like when God rules in your life. So that was the very first part um, of uh, Acts 1. And of course, it's a spiritual kingdom now. As he rules in our hearts, he spreads his spiritual kingdom. He spreads his spiritual kingdom throughout the world. And one day he'll physically rule from Jerusalem. And the disciples asked, are you going to do that right now? And he said, no, it's not for you to know times and authorities the Father said. All that will come later. In the meantime, wait there in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were. To Judea and Samaria, that was their country. And those next door that were a little bit different than they were. And then to the ends of the earth. And that verse there, verse 8, kind of is the outline for the entire book of Acts. The first few chapters are the gospel permeating Jerusalem. Then the middle chapters are the gospel getting uh, to about chapter 12 or so, the gospel getting to um, the Judean Samaria. And then chapter 13, uh, God raises up Paul and others and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Now before we read uh, verses um, 12 through 26 is what we're going to read. Let me tell you about one of my heroes. I talked a little bit about him a few Sundays ago. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was born in the year 1700 in Dresden, and he was a future count. Uh, And in his home, his parents would have Bible study, and they'd have prayer, and they'd have singing. And they were uh, Lutherans and deeply influenced. uh, When he was 10 years old, he was deeply influenced by a man named August Franke, who they call a pietist. Pietists are the German version of the Puritans that were in England. They took their faith seriously, they took the Word of God seriously, and they wanted to uh, you know, purify their faith by doing what's in the Bible uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so you know the word piety means a reverent, godly person. These were the pietists, and uh, others looked at them and said, they don't just take the doctrines of the faith seriously. They really want to love Jesus. They want to have a spiritual experience with Jesus and pass the faith along to others. What well, 15 years old, old Nicholas was so excited about the Lord that um, he got together with some other friends and he came up with a group. They had a little club and it was called the Order of the Grain of the Mustard Seed. And their motto was, no man liveth unto himself. So this deeply spiritual 15-year-old gathered some friends around. No man liveth unto himself. And we're going to be, we like that mustard seed, how faith starts small and just spreads out. Little did he know the impact he would have 
not only on Moravian Brethren missions, but also on Baptist missions. Um, in 1721, he started his career as a lawyer. He was a nobleman. And um, the next year, 1722, so he's only 22 years old, he allowed a persecuted group of believers that were looking for a home. They were persecuted all throughout Europe. And a group called the Unitus Fratrum, the Unity of the Brothers, um, the descendants of John Huss. If you ever heard of Jan Huss from Czechoslovakia area, he and his followers loved the Lord. They were mercilessly persecuted. They were forerunners to Luther and reformers and things like that. Uh, in 1722, uh, they knocked on his estate door and they said, Will you help us? We've heard you're a godly man and might provide shelter to us. And he said, Yes, the estate's big enough for that to happen. There were 300 of them. 300 of them. And uh, he allowed them to build on his property. To, but, but he did more than that. He realized that they were beleaguered. And he just said, Lord, you've opened a door. You want me to encourage them. And he did. He would go from the estate and the lawyering stuff that he would do. He'd walk down to them and he encouraged them and uh, got them united, got them praying and forgiving each other for the offenses they had against one another and those things. And he called the place Hernhut, which means under the Lord's watch. Now, he was a man that faced difficulties. In 1724, the first of his 12 children were born. That child died three months later, and only three of his children outlived him. So he had several die in infancy, others die later on, and only three outlived him. He lived till 1760. Um, as he ministered to these, uh, these uh, Unitus Fratrum, the guys down there in Hernhut, what they called, he helped them reorganize, and they came to a brotherly agreement. And they were praising the Lord, and they were learning the scriptures, and they um, began praying. And in fact, they said, you know, what would happen if just among the 300 of us right here together in this tight community, what would happen if um, we prayed around the clock um, and each of our members took a shift in praying, you know? Uh, what might the Lord do through us if we did that? And um, it turned into 100 years worth of praying around the clock just from that little group that swelled to about 600. But for 100 years, um, they got together during shifts and in small groups prayed together and applied the scriptures. And I'm going to tell you more about the Moravian Brethren later. Um, but first, um, let me tell you something Robert Jeffress said in his book, Twilight's Last Gleaming. Robert Jeffress, the great first Baptist Dallas pastor now, he said this, Dorothy Sayers has written that God has undergone three great acts of humiliation in human history. The first was the incarnation when he poured himself into the confines of a human body. The second was the crucifixion when he suffered the humiliation of a public execution by his subjects. And the third humiliation, Dorothy Sayers said, is the church through which God has entrusted his reputation to ordinary people. Wow. So we give people the right or the wrong idea about Jesus. And I think that's just a profound statement. You know, at our best, we show the love of the Lord. We get the truth out there. Um, let me tell you something real exciting that the Tabernacle's done the last 13 years. We got a note this week from Transition Pregnancy Support Services in Danville. You know, I know I'm getting the wrong name wrong. Trans Transition Solutions or anyway, whatever it is. I'm confusing the name of it and the other one we support. 
We got a note from them that said the last 13 years, the tabernacle just has now crossed $100,000 of gifts to that organization that helps save babies and save souls here in Danville. Isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? Well, that's the kind of things that churches do together, right? Give every person a dignity and help rescue people out of bad situations and help feed and clothe them and give them eternal life through the gospel. Uh, so, in all the ways I think about how God's reputation is hurt among believers, the way most churches make decisions and do kind of church businessy things is probably right at the top. But in a life in a group of believers, there's always business that needs to be done, isn't there? When you organize people, you've got decisions that need to be made, whether the 300 of you live together on makeshift houses at Hernhut on a Saxony estate, you know, or whether you come from all different areas, North Carolina and parts of the counties around us and stuff, to get to church for a Sunday or a Wednesday. Today we're going to get insight into how to do our church business from the very first church business meeting. So Acts chapter 1 verses 12 to 26, the first time they had to do business without Jesus physically with them. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, always named first, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Verse 18. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. So it's interesting how you have to reconcile some scriptures. One of the Gospels says that he hung himself, and evidently at the end of that hanging process, stuff started falling out. Ooh, you know. And so we read that here. It was a very vivid memory in Peter's mind. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They probably knew that Joseph, who is surnamed, uh, called Barsabbas, was sur that'd be a lot to put on a jersey, wouldn't it? So I'd be in favor of Matthias there, I think. But anyway, verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Hmm. United prayer brings clarity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learn here in Acts chapter 1, and we thank you for how believers throughout time have gone to you in prayer, and in the midst of 
the best efforts they could make at planning relied on you to lead them, God. And Lord, we pray that even though we may not be those who draw lots today, we thank you uh, for all the principles we learn here that do convey to the day we're in as we too look to continue to pass the baton of faith and leadership on to the next generation, Lord God. We thank you for how you unite our hearts in prayer. I, I know from my own experience, it's hard to be mad at people that you're praying regularly with. And I thank you for how you use not only the Word of God, but prayer to form the fellowship. And so, Lord, I thank you for these folks before me, so committed to prayer, and uh, many with deep and rich personal prayer lives. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to find ways uh, to pray out loud with one another in our homes, in our church, in our small groups, and in our ministries. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, verses 12 to 14, we see this unity in prayer uh, that they had there. It says that they uh, needed to return to the upper room. A Sabbath day journey is about 2,000 cubits or about half a mile. So they had about half a mile to travel to get from where they were when they lost, last saw Jesus to the upper room that they had prayed in. A lot of people believe that upper room was the house of uh, John Mark's mom. And uh, that's something that people talk about, that that may be the case. So that's kind of interesting, the exposure that Mark had to these disciples uh, in, in his home and how that could helped him learn Peter's story. And other times he learned Peter's story too. It's interesting there in verse uh, 13, it says, it lists the disciples one more time. And it says, Peter, John, and James. And we did say that, you know, Peter is always mentioned first. And God had a key role in him being the first among equals. And even though uh, New Testament leadership is collaborative leadership, even though it is a group of men helping shepherd the church together, uh, the New Testament model is also a first among equals. So the 12 led as a team, but Peter was the captain. Jesus is the coach, right? God's the coach, but there's a player, there's a player coach on the field, and that was Peter. Later, we're going to see in the book of Acts a time where uh, the apostles wind up going everywhere sharing the gospel and they had new elders to replace the apostles as the leaders for that church in Jerusalem. And we're told that when Paul went to Jerusalem, he submitted himself to James and the brothers. Now, James the apostle is dead by that point. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, that is being talked about in Acts 21 or 22. We'll see it when we get there. But uh, Paul submitted himself to the authority of the local elders of that church, the leaders of that church, and it says he went into James and the brothers, and he wound up doing what they said. He was under their authority at the local church. So just kind of interesting how that works out. And I've always tried to be a, uh, a strong leader, but a, a, you know, a collaborative leader. He works through a team of leaders, but God raises one up to be the first among equals. Um, now, trivia time for you. Who is listed here for the last time? You say, Pastor, I don't know. You, 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 you know, I don't know. Um, the rest of them, Peter, James, and John, we see in the early pages of Acts, these other guys did great things for Jesus. We just don't know about it. You know, they went somewhere and did things and stuff, but this is the last time that they're listed. Um, and they all did great things for the Lord, but we, in God's sovereign way, He unfolded the book of uh, Acts. We hear for about 12 chapters a lot about Peter and the, the, the team of leaders, and then 
Acts 13 and beyond, it's more about Paul and Paul's conversions even earlier than that. So we'll get there. Uh, but who else was there? Who else was there along with the apostles? We know there's about 120 people. Who else was there, does it say? Jesus' mother and other women, right? And I love those places in the gospel where it lists out people like Joanna and Mary Magdalene and uh, the other Mary and this one, you know, Salome and ones that uh, I think it's Luke. Is it Luke 8 where it talks about how these uh, ladies travel had traveled with the team and uh, gave of their own money? Uh, Joanna was the wife of Chusa, which was Herod's steward and things like that. So maybe some of those same women were there. We don't know. Who else uh, does it say specifically was there? His brothers, right? His brothers. So James, that writes the little book of James, that's one of them. And Jude is one of them who writes the little letter of Jude. And the Gospels make clear that there was a time when even though they'd grown up with Jesus and he was perfect, you know, perfect big brother to them, uh, they had to believe. And the, probably the resurrection was the change for them. They saw him dead. They saw him alive. Uh, they saw him ascend to heaven, and they too were among the believers. So that's so cool to think about. And these were continually united in prayer. Uh, I like that. Continually united in prayer. Say that with me. Continually united in prayer. The Greek there is together with one mind or purpose. Umo thumadan. Your translation, our translation may read in one accord. In fact, it did here, but they were continually united in prayer. And that, that phrase occurs about 10 times in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, the book of Acts is all about witness. It's all about prayer. It's all about what the Holy Spirit does through people and in prayer, how he makes us courageous to share. So the first believers modeled for us the importance of coming together and praying out loud. Now, praying out loud with other believers is biblical, Right? So not only are we seeing that here, but Jesus had said, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. And you may be savvy enough to know that says, well, Danny, that context there in Matthew 18, it's more about agreeing about something that should be done. So yes, uh, it does apply to prayer, but that was the specific context of Matthew 18. But Colossians 4 I just want to point one thing out to you about the times, uh, the things that happen in the letters of the apostles. Almost all of the commands they give are in the plural. So it's not just uh, you, Tim, pray, it's you all pray, right? It's you all. So uh, Colossians 4, 2 and 3 says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Hey, it's Thanksgiving time. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message to speak the mystery of the Messiah. Hey, this coming Sunday morning, I'm preaching about the open doors before the redeemed. Because we're in that passage in Revelation 3 where God says, I have set an open door before you. And it's so exciting when we get to see God open doors. It's, it's a good thing when He closes doors because we don't want to uh, waste effort on that which He hasn't called us to. So when He closes doors, it's sometimes frustrating, but it's the it means he's going to open something up, a window or a door, right, uh, to go through. Praying out loud with other believers is practical. So it's not just biblical, it's practical. Uh, some of you have heard me say this, others have not, but I've tried as a pastor to keep track of the practices that help a person grow. I've been kind of a, uh, a, a, a watcher of people that are godly and people that are growing and people that God is using. 
And I've tried to, over the years, just make my own mental list, and sometimes I put it on paper, of principles of that kind of believer, you know. And uh, regularly praying out loud with other believers near the top. Not, not in a showy way, not in a showy way. And I know some of you are intensely shy, and you say, well, I, I, I just have a real hard time doing that. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. I, I have a different personality, so, you know, I'm more of the, you know, the... Uh, Tigger of uh, Winnie the Pooh. My wife is a little bit more of the Eeyore personality, you know, uh, and uh, we complement each other. No, maybe sometimes it's Rabbit she's like, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, but uh, I used to joke um, that if she had a Chinese name, it would be uh, So Dang Mean. And she said, Well, your Chinese name would be Too Dang Happy. <laughs> so I understand personalities, uh, but I'm just here to tell you that um, if you can be around other believers, uh, even at the spouse level, if you're not used to doing that, and just uh, you pray and they pray, there's something beautiful about that and humbly about that that really just helps your faith. Um, there are lots of reasons, but I'll just give uh, one uh, today tonight. So there's, think about praise, right? When we praise the Lord. So I used to say, thinking vertically, us and God, right, going up to God. I used to say, and I, and I wasn't wrong, because a lot of people say it, and it's right, that worship is before an audience of one. When we're together and singing songs and worshiping, sometimes we think of, okay, you got the leader, and the congregation is the audience, you know, and those things. But biblically, I think it's fair to say that everybody in that room are the worshipers and the audience is God, right? So it's vertical. Worship is vertical. It's us singing to God, praises to Him. Now, I say that, but we can't escape the fact that Ephesians 5.19 says that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the parallel passage in Colossians says that we're to sing, and it says the same thing. Sing or speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what we do is not to be showy, but... According to Scripture, our praise has a vertical dimension, us praising God, verticals up and down, horizontals this way, right? So our praise also has a horizontal dimension. There's something that's so encouraging about being with people that love the Lord and have His peace and joy. And I can tell you how many times one of our choir members or somebody else that's been up there while we're singing has said, when I look down and see... Uh, a man like Mac Baldwin just, you know, like this in praise and adoration on his face. It just takes my faith and encourages it, you know. I think about also uh, the reality that different people struggle with different things. And I've seen it before. You know, pastors are privy to information. And I've seen times where there is three or four people in the congregation that are all recovering alcoholics or have been addicted to something and they're trying to work through that and turn their life over to Christ. I've seen the power of when you're singing those songs, let's say Jim's over there, one of them, and I'm one of them and stuff. I've seen the, a person singing and I've seen when they look over and the other guy that's going through the same thing goes, yeah, and there's that level of recognition there that we're both overcomers in the name of the Lord, right? God's, brought us, God's bringing us through this, you know. So don't you ever believe that your presence and engagement and in worship doesn't matter. But the same thing I think we can say is true of prayer. You know, um, there are times I'm heart sick and I'm praying with my staff or other believers 
and, and I'm not even sure how to pray, and I know the Holy Spirit will help me pray, but sometimes when the next brother prays or the next sister in a co-ed time of prayer prays, it just uh, encourages me so, the way they say it, and you know, we, we come together in one accord in that moment, you know, so it can be very powerful. So let me encourage you, uh, if you've not been in the habit of that, uh, you know, try to get some of that more of that introduced into your Sunday school classes and this time on Wednesday night and other times. So, well now let's look at the lost of the twelve. L-O-S-T is your next fill in the blank. So they had some business to do. It says, Peter stood up, and we're in verse 15 here, and it says, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, 120 of them, and uh, first of all, Peter stood up. Do you remember um, what all had gone on in the last 50 days or so for Peter? He had denied Christ. Backing up before that, Peter uh, had been, Jesus had told Peter he was going to deny Christ. And he said, Satan has desired, he hates your guts, Peter. He's desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Hey, he's praying for us now. He ever lives to make intercession for us, his present intercession for us. Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Well, Jesus restored him on the beach, right? But here we are now, we're in Acts chapter 1. And when it came time for a decision to be made, Peter stood up, right, and he's going to lead. This is what Christ had, uh, you know, he knew that Peter would be a rock for the early church there. Where there had been fear, now there was boldness. And it's just so cool to think about. It says, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and he said, so he's going to lead them in this time. John MacArthur's got this great quote. Since all believers are imperfect, they need examples of less than perfect people who know how to deal with imperfection and who can model the process of pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness. Now, I had a dear pastor friend back up in the Waynesboro area, and he remembered a seminary president or professor saying these words to the entire class. You are in ministry to grow publicly. People are going to see you as a pastor growing and dealing with things uh, in your life and your family and your church and all the different things. And that is going to be, uh, inspire them as they have things to deal with and grow through and things like that. You're in ministry to grow publicly. And that's true for all of us. We're all leaders in God's vineyard, you know, and that sort of thing. So I love what John MacArthur said there. And here we've got Peter, this extended analysis in the scriptures of him blowing it, him being forgiven and reconciled, and now stepping forward to be the leader he was meant to be. He's still going to have some flubs, you know, along the way, but we all do. And he's got 120 people there. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Just 120 people, uh, you know. And uh, so God can work through um, churches of any size. Uh, there was only 120 people there in Jerusalem. And he said the scriptures had to be fulfilled about Judas. And the two he mentions here, one is from Psalm 69, the other is from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But I like in verse 17 it says that Judas was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Other translations say something like that Judas was allotted a share in this ministry. Oh. What an amazing loss. Judas missed it. He was supposed to be one of the twelve. And, 
And we've all seen people walk away and reveal their unbelief like Judas did. But he was one week away. He was just one week away. He denied Christ, and if he just waited one more week, he would have seen Jesus rise from the dead. If he just stayed one more week, but he walked away and missed it all. Instead of faith, Judas gave into fear, unbelief, and greed. And I think about the people that we influence. I hope none of you are in this category where you're just thinking about chucking it and walking it away. You don't know what God wants to do in the next week. In the next week. What would we miss if we walked out right now? Judas missed it, and the Scripture had to be fulfilled, uh, but it didn't need to be fulfilled by Judas. He could have made a different decision, and another one would have wound up being the betrayer somehow, and uh, yet he became that person. He was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. Well, they needed another to take his position. Another to take his position. Now, verse 22 it says that um, it is necessary, beginning from, they, they said, for, oh, let me go back to verse 21. Therefore, these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, Judas is gone. We need another one to go from 11 to 12. And... Uh, it says here the criteria that whoever uh, is in on this has to be. First of all, we ask, why the number 12? Why do there have to be 12? Well, we've got a couple of verses that hint at it. Back in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, probably talking about His millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, you who have followed Me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that was going to be something special for those 12 disciples. Um, now, in Revelation 21, 14, it says, The New Jerusalem wall has 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the Lamb's apostles. Judas missed it. Don't be a Judas. So, the lost of the 12. Well, next is the last of the 12. Who's going to fill that seat? The 12th of these uh, Jerusalem-based apostles. Um, and again, verses 21 through 26, we just looked at the clear criteria in verse 21 and 22. They had to be a follower since the baptism of John and an eyewitness of the resurrection. Now, I know some of you have been taught or think yourself, didn't they really act hastily here and Paul was really supposed to be the twelfth? And my answer to you is, I think this text for, doesn't allow for that. Because it could be that Paul, as an unbeliever, saw the resurrection. He, he was in Jerusalem, and he was a disciple of Gamaliel. So maybe he was one of the ones saying, crucify him in the square there and, and saw Jesus. But, but he was not a follower, going back to the days of John the Baptist, when Jesus recruited those first 12, and dozens and dozens of others also followed. Well, what that also means is that when Jesus picked the twelve, from that time on, it probably never was uh, 24 hours passing with it just being the twelve. There were others around too. Uh, uh, 500 saw Him risen from the dead, so we know that's probably the cap number. Others followed at some shallow level and things like that. There are 120 in the upper room. So among those others, they proposed two 
that had been with them that entire time. And uh, you got to really admire both Joseph and Matthias because you, you have to believe that there was some desire of theirs to be that 12th person. And we think, well, yeah, wouldn't that be great to be famous as the last of the 12? Uh, but remember some of the teachings of Jesus that the disciples heard and the apostles, but also some of these others heard that were accepting this assignment. What would this mean for the one selected? Certain persecution and probable death. So you're filling the blank, there's probable death. Neither Joseph or Messiah would say no to this assignment because they'd already said yes to God. A man greatly inspired me one time by saying, you know, I can't say no to God because I already said yes. And he said, really, that's a good way to understand salvation, that at salvation you're saying, I will follow you. And so, Lord, if it's you asking, the answer is yes. Now, I don't want to be manipulated by people that have a plan for my life that aren't you, you know, uh, but I'm going to trust that uh, when you make it clear to me it's from you, you've got my yes already. And we'll talk more about that this Sunday morning with open and closed doors. Some doors the Lord opens for us are time-based doors, and if we don't go through them in that moment, it'll be an opportunity for blessing lost to us forever. God, God, uh, like God told uh, um, uh, Esther, he told Esther, right? If you don't step forward here, Esther, salvation for the Jews will come from another place. God's not going to let his people die out. But uh, you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. You're the one that will miss the chance to have joined God in what he's doing. And we certainly don't want to be among that number. So uh, God speaks through his word, through prayer, through the body of Christ, through circumstances. And both of these men, two men that met the criteria, godly men that had... Uh, been followers all the way back and stuff. So uh, three and a half years of following Christ now. Um, both men said, if the lot falls to me, I will say yes. I will say yes. Tradition says Matthias preached in Judea before death by stoning. So it looks like his being the man that the Lord picked uh, meant his death. We don't know about the other one. But what a reward awaits him because he said yes. Now, you may be familiar that the Jewish folks, going back to the days of the priests, sometimes when they had decisions, there were two good options and they didn't know what to do. And in such cases, they're like, well, if both these options would work, let's go to the priest. And in the priest's ephod, his little breastplate thing there, he would have what was called the Urim and the Thummim. And it was just a, a different, I think I gave you the verses, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Ezra, Nehemiah, where some of this happened and stuff. And it was just kind of like, you know, if you've ever uh, had to draw straws and you drew one, not the other, and it, it said that, then, then there you go. Um, Proverbs 16.33 actually says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, here's an early indicator about what we're going to experience in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is narrative. It tells us what happened. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do it that exact same way, right? So that's true in narrative. Um, and so we don't see this and we say, okay, when we need to make a decision, let's have two good options or two good people and then draw the lot. Um, so you're wondering why don't we draw a lot when we have to choose deacons or something, you know, and things like that. Um, so 
We learn from narrative, but there's no command to do the same. And that's going to be important when we get to things like, that we're going to experience in the book of Acts, like speaking in tongues. You know, there's several examples of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. And we leave the book of Acts saying, huh, if you're a really good believer, you're supposed to speak in tongues. Some people say that. Others say that uh, you're not really filled with the Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. Well, what is it, you know? Well, Acts tells what happened, but the letters give the commands. And one of the principles of Bible reading is that you need to interpret narrative literature by clear doctrinal commands. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul gives comprehensive teaching on what the church should do when speaking in tongues is around, right? And so we go there when we're looking for information for the year 2021. We read what happened, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's what we do. So Lot's is our first example of that in the book of Acts. Uh, and this united prayer they had brings clarity. Now, I've been a part of selecting leaders for 32 years, and here's what usually happens. Um, what usually happens is we need somebody or two or three to fill a position, and um, we hope that uh, somebody will step forward and do it, and we sometimes hope they're qualified too, right? And so sometimes we need five people. We know three are qualified, two are maybes, but we need five. They're all willing. Let's put them in there and stuff. And I think this passage does shed light on the fact that in Scripture they just thought about things differently, right? Uh, so, so I'm not ever going to recommend using lots to decide leadership positions going forward. But think about the good things that are happening here, right? you got two men that are qualified. Either one would be great. Either one would be great. So they've got two. It could be either one. They could have had a vote of the 120 and maybe given Peter the deciding vote if it was 60 to 60, you know, kind of like a Senate type situation or something like that. But instead, they're like, they're both qualified and they're both willing to serve. So the lot was a way of letting the Lord decide. Um, and they lived with that. And sometimes I think something like this might be a good way to out some more of the godly men and women in the church when we have something to do. Because a lot of times the qualified candidates say, I just don't have time. I don't have this, the other, and I'm reluctant to do it for this reason or that reason and stuff. So what would it be if we needed five, 15 were willing, and we let the lot decide, and each man already had said yes if the lot came to him, you know? Uh, that it was God who had determined that. Anyway, it just makes me think, you know. But as individuals, we need to pray and be open to saying yes to our leaders and take up assignments they feel we are gifted for. Be open. So there's your fill in the blank. This is the first church business done without Jesus being physically present with them, and we've already talked about some of what we can learn. For these first believers, church business was saturated with prayer and scriptural reflection throughout the whole process, and they even found a way to let God have the final say. <laughs> so I just love it. I love it. Well, let's go back in time now to Zinzendorf as we bring this thing to a close here. Um, the lot fell to Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven, became one of the twelve. But I was telling you about Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. So he got this community together. They got united. They began praying with one another. The prayer meeting just kept on going. And he went traveling for business. And he met Anthony, a slave from the Danish West Indies. And he was talking, you know, I mean, this is how cool he was. I mean, you know, 
He's a man, a nobleman, used to being around people with servants and things like that. And he sees this guy, Anthony, who's from the Danish West Indies. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> it's all right. That just was the smile we needed. Uh, so Anthony is a slave from the Danish West Indies. He's a black man. Uh, and Zinzendorf spends the afternoon talking to him. And Anthony has become a Christian. And Anthony is heartbroken because all of the people he knows back in the West Indies are not believers. And, you know, he isn't necessarily happy to be a slave, but he's happy that in the providence of God, he'd found a place and his uh, master, somebody had shared the gospel with him and he'd come to Christ. And Zinzendorf could not get that off his mind. The needs of the other uh, folks that lived in the Danish West Indies. At the time, uh, colonizers from Europe would go to these places and they would extract all they could from the land. Uh, they didn't want much missionary activity happening with the uh, natives uh, and um, because they feared what would happen if they came to know Christ and then learned all that the, who they are in Christ and saw Paul calling for the freeing of slaves and that sort of thing. So, um, so uh, Zinzendorf went back to Hernhut, and the next time he was speaking to the 300, he told them about Anthony. And he might have even brought him with him. I think he did. And um, they, uh, they decided, you know what? Why don't we send some missionaries? They didn't even know what a missionary was. Why don't we send some people to them to witness? And they decided they would send two men to go and start the whole process, right? But who? Anybody willing to go on an uncertain voyage and set up in harsh conditions and maybe die of a disease and maybe get killed by the natives instead of embraced by them? Anybody willing to do that? Three men stepped forward. They said, well, we think it prudent to send two. So how did they decide between the three willing men? They drew lots, just like this. They prayed and drew lots. Leonard Dobers and David Nishmans said, go. They drew the lot with go on it. Tobias Leopold said, wait. And so he waited. The other two went. But later, he got to go too to somewhere else. As did an astonishing 300 missionaries by the year 1791. And they went all over the world, and many of them died for their faith. Before Baptists ever thought about going on missions, Moravian Brethren missionaries had gone all over the globe. And when William Carey... Now this gets us to Baptist. In 1792, he stood up at a meeting and he said, I want to talk about, I want to get an inquiry. I've, I gave you a little thing I've written called an inquiry into our obligation to bring the gospel to the heathen. And um, he started talking about it and a good old staunch hyper-Calvinist stood up and said, young man, when God wants to reach those folks over there, he'll do it without you or I. And uh, trying to shut down the meeting, right? But it didn't work. It didn't work because the Spirit was at work. And uh, somewhere in there, uh, this is a wallet, but he got out a little book from his back pocket and he said, now listen, um, this book is periodical account of Moravian missions. And he said, if you only knew what these people went through to get the gospel to the heathen, we'd be talking about this a different way. And you know, they did 
and William Carey himself wound up going to India and of course translated the Bible into 26 dialects before he was done, had an amazing missionary career and Baptists have been going ever since, you know, and even a little bit, uh, it's just amazing. So tremendous what happened through that little group of believers that learned to pray, that were willing to do whatever God asked them to do, and, um, and the lot had a bit of way of picking that out. So I gave you this little prayer here. Lord Jesus, there's a lot lacking in my life, but use me as much as you can. I don't want to shrink back from your call in my life. Oh, Master, I'm willing to pay the price to do all that you desire me to do. I will serve you with my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But look at verse 24. It says, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you've chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. Uh, in verse 24, God is called the cardionastes, the knower of the heart. Isn't that great? The knower of the heart. Do you see the word for heart diagnoser in there? So tuck that away in your names of God, that he's your heart diagnoser. You know, he knows what's in your heart. He knows what you want to do for him, what you're able to do, what he'd call you to do. And so praise the Lord for that. Um, and so once again, I'm going to pray this prayer for each of us as a prayer to close us out. And uh, may we too be yes lords. Not yes men, but yes lords. Lord Jesus, there's a lot lacking in my life, but use me as much as you can. I don't want to shrink back from your call in my life. Oh Master, I'm willing to pay the price to do all that you desire me to do. I will serve you with all my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.